Hi everyone, before we get started today, just wanted to let you guys know that between July 15th and 17th, Peter and I are both going to be at a board game convention in Toronto called Breakout Con. So if you want to see us, feel free to come on by and hang out. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check out the convention details. And I will be at the Proteo booth the entire weekend, where you can play test your prototypes or come try other people's. So if you want to come say hi to us, you know where to find us. Welcome to Fun Problems. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is the Problems of Fun, which is to say game design and designing games and also the design of games. What are we talking about today, AJ? Today we're talking about games, more specifically kids' games. Yes. Uh, any follow-up before we start? Kind of. Ooh, is oh. this about That Time You Killed Me episode? It is about That Time You Killed Me episode. Which we recorded so long ago, I can barely remember what was said. Ages. It must have been seconds. At least seconds. <laughs> yeah, like 40 seconds ago. <laughs> we ended on a teaser, which is what I want to... Oh, yes. This episode is the follow-up. So do you want to say what I said and why it's incorrect? Yeah, so you said that I was an expert on kids' games, mm-hmm. which is definitely not true. And you said that we'd be talking about games that work for kids and adults and the whole family which is maybe true. That's probably something we will touch on, but that's not actually the topic I've been dying to record forever. Let me unnecessarily tangent. There's an episode of um, Board Game Design Lab where I talk about the two types of cooperative games. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to Gabe. I think that was my first episode with him because I was like, look, I give this spiel all the time because people just, they make the same mistake and I explain it and they're like, oh, that's really useful. I'm like, thank you. I'm sick of saying it. One time I said it like seven times at one convention. And at the end I was just like, look, you were there the last four times I said it. Can you just say it to them? (laughs) And so I just recorded that podcast. So every time I needed to give that spiel, I could just be like, go listen to this one episode. And people did. It's a very popular episode. It's probably the best episode of game design I've heard. And it is the episode that I link to the most out of any game design podcast yeah uh so this is me trying to do that with a different topic because i run into this constantly and that is game designers like proper serious game designers who love them a game who think that they've made a kid's game i'm so excited for this episode do you know what i'm talking about i don't but i've never designed a kid's game i don't have any interest in designing a kid's game and i don't like playing 99% of kids' games, and in my mind, a lot of kids' games that I play are just dirt simple adult games, like adult game that's missing half the mechanics, basically. Like a published kids' game? Yeah, so like roll the die, move along the track, and if you get to the end of the track, you win with extra steps is a lot of kids' games that I have played. And so I wouldn't call that an adult's game with missing steps. Well, it's like, it's a full game with missing steps. You know what I mean? You might have like the start point of a game and then you just stopped and you're like, it's a kid's game. It's simple. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And even games that don't use standard roll and move, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I have played a decent number of kids games with my niece recently. And a lot of them just feel like that dirt, simple, don't actually make decisions sort of a game. Right. So I'm super interested to dive into this with you. So here's what happens is I sit down and people are like, hey, this is a kid's game. And I think I do this more than most, A, because I go to a lot of playtesting events, and B, because people are like, oh, Jelly Bean Games, he makes kids games. We don't make what I would call kids games. We make kid-friendly games, absolutely. Hmm. Our tagline is kid-friendly games that adults love or that grown-ups love. And so we make kid-friendly games, but we don't make kids games. And so I will sit down and someone will explain the rules. And that sentence means that we've already got a problem. 
if it's an actual proper kids game, which these people are trying to make, and God bless them, I'm not trying to bully anyone, I'm not trying to punch down, but if you're trying to make a game for legitimate children, like a children's game, like Snakes and Ladders, etc., most of the time they're coming at it from like, I hate Snakes and Ladders, I want to make something better than that. So what they'll do is they'll design a Euro, but make it very, very simple. And a kids game, like a publishable actual Harvest style or Target style kids game, is not like an adult game at all. A kid's game needs one to two rules. That's it. That's all you're allowed. If you have a second page of a rule book, you've done it wrong. I'm going to name an example of one of the most recent ones I played, and hopefully the designer doesn't listen to this and cry, because I told them this at the time. It was a game where you had a grid of maybe four by four cards, and everyone had a token. And on your turn, you could move your token to any adjacent card, orthogonally adjacent card. And then you would take the card that you left, and then if you had a combo, you could play that to move some cards around on the board. <laughs> i already seen the problem. Yes. And the other two is that a lot of these people are parents, so they want to make a game that their kids will enjoy, and their kids do enjoy it. But so their you, kids are kids of gamers right. and designers. So you might say, Peter, who are you to say that they're wrong if these kids are enjoying it? Well, these are designers' kids to begin with, which is a whole different ballgame. They literally have games surrounding them all the time. My son is four. He's playing King Domino, Patchwork. Ocean Explosion. Explosion, yeah. Like, he's playing those. Those are not games for four-year-olds. Mm -hmm. He is playing those because he is the kid of a designer who's been around games his entire life and is, I'm going to say, intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> My niece at age, it was three or four, was playing Lanterns with me. Simplified Lanterns, right. but Lanterns. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a kid's game. Mm -hmm. Because the kid can play it, that doesn't definitionally make it a kid's game. Mm. So the issue with this is that as soon as you encounter a rules exception, you've hit a problem. Because if we're doing like a proper kids games, kids can't internalize rules exceptions. Mm -hmm. Like kids, kids, again, I'm talking like, you know, two, two to eight. As soon as you've got multiple rules, multiple steps, like no kid wants to say, okay, I'm not going to say no kid because again, designing kids are the exception. But the standard kid does not want to sit down and learn a flow of a turn. They don't want to learn like the four steps in a turn. If you have steps in a turn, there's a problem. You're allowed to draw a card, play a card, that's it. <laughs> so Rhino Hero, for example, is a great kid's game. Rhino Hero is on the complex end for a kid's game. Hmm. Uh, if you've never played Rhino Hero, it's brilliant. It's sort of like card Jenga. So on your turn, you play a card and they've got like the Uno actions of like reverse the turn order or make someone draw a card or stuff like that. And then the card that you play, you get to put onto a tower and then you move the Rhino up one. And then you draw a card. So that's four steps. You might and, think. And if the uh, tower collapses as you're trying to place the rhino, then that's right. Yeah. Right. And so A, that is very kid friendly in that it's like you're building a tower and watching stuff fall over. It's tactile. It's exciting. A thing is happening that they can get emotionally invested in. Yeah. I think one big thing for kids games is the big emotional spikes, right? Yeah. You, yes. you, for kids games, you want it to be very spiky. Yeah. So firstly, it, it has those spikes. Secondly, it's so tactile and visual and table presence. That's not a nice to have for a kid's game. That's a necessity. Whereas this game that I was talking about was just a grid of cards and moving a token around this grid and trying to make sets. Then it had victory points at the end. And it just, like these are great designers. I then played one of their heavy Euros and it was amazing. Like one of my my favorite heavy euro prototypes i've ever played but you can't apply the same logic of a heavy euro as you can with a kids game because kids game is not a heavy euro with less rules it's a whole different beast so i'm going to give you some examples of what i think are some of the best kids games ever made have you played ghost blitz i have played ghost blitz yep. ghost blitz is brilliant mm -hmm. there is one rule <laughs> yeah. do you want to explain ghost blitz yeah so ghost blitz correct me if i'm wrong because it has been a little yeah, while yeah 
you'll flip over a card and it will have a, a color and a, a thing on it. And that thing will apply to one of these toys. Yeah. And so in the example, I know you have a gray mouse, a red book, a green chair, and a blue hat or something like that. Right. And so they're all physical things. You literally have these things sitting in front of you. They've made them in 3D. They're there. Mm -hmm. And then the card will have uh, a color and one of the objects on it. And you're trying to pick what... What was it? You, you're so it's it's either that one of the things, it'll have all four of them on the card and one of them is wrong or only one of them is right. Right. Okay. It's something like that. I, I couldn't remember which way it went. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be like, oh, it's got these colors and these things on it. So I can't pick any of those. I have to pick the one thing that doesn't have. So it might have a blue mouse, a red hat and a green couch. And you're like, oh, the only one that's correct is this. And you're racing to grab that. Mm -hmm. If you get it right, you get the card in front of you. If not, you flip another card. Once the deck's done, whoever has the most cards wins. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's technically victory points. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, but it's it's whoever has the most cards win. And it's so irrelevant. And if you use the word victory points, like yeah. that term, that's automatically <laughs> going to be a problem. I think a spot it is like my go-to. Spot it's games. amazing. Yeah, a double it's known as in the UK. Oh, yeah. yeah. So spot it is uh, you draw two cards, they're circular cards, which is a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. And there's only ever one icon in common between the two cards. And the first person to name what the icon is gets the card. And again, most cards wins. I think it's worth pointing out that a circular card is also easier for kids to hold. Whenever I see kids holding cards, because they're rectangular and sharp edges and stuff, usually it's bent in their hand. They hold it kind of funny. But with a big round card, you don't have to worry about what orientation you pick it up in. And it fits in their hand more nicely, I found, when I play it with my niece. Oh, finger. Yeah. So Spotted and Ghost Splits are two perfect kids games because they're not Feast for Odin, but simpler. <laughs> they're not even patchwork. Like even patchwork, which is one of the most elegant games ever designed, is too much for a kids game. It's too cerebral. It's too victory pointy. It's too economy -y. like it's just, it's not a kid's game. You don't want set collection. You don't want engine building. You don't want any of these things that as an adult, of course you want those. That's the point of games for you, but it's a whole different world. My friend, David Stevenson, I've probably mentioned this before. He says every game either tests a skill or is a market. <laughs> he thinks all games fall into one of those two categories. Or is a market. Can yeah. you elaborate on that? So spot it is first to do the thing, or it's, can you read the other players and invest at the right time? He thinks those are the only two things that games fall under. I, I want to dig more into the market, side of things, <laughs> but that feels like a different podcast. Yeah, okay. So. so let's just say every game tests a skill. And sometimes that, that skill is how good are you at a market? Okay, sure. Uh, and so you got to ask, what skill are you testing? And if you're testing, like in this example that I keep bringing up, spatial and set collection and comboing and seeing through, like it's too much. Mm -hmm. Spotted is testing, can you match icon? Ghost Splits is testing, can you spot what's wrong or what's right? Looping Louie. <laughs> like, yeah. have you played Looping Louie? Oh, great game. Amazing game. Again, the rule is try to hit the other chickens without your chickens getting hit by hitting this thing. <laughs> hungry, hungry hippos. These are arguably toys mm -hmm. more than games, but I think Ghost Splits and Spotted are very clearly games. Illusion, it's not a, a kid-friendly theme and style, but that one has very strange icons or pictures or whatever, and the different colors are represented on there. It's always the same four colors. On the back of the card shows the percentage of how much of each color is on the card. And it's very hard to tell because they're very strange. Yeah, they're, they're psychedelic sort of patterns. Yeah. And so the idea is you just draw a card. Does this have more or less of the color that we care about this round? And you just put them in order. That's instantly yeah. any kid knows, oh, there's more of this than this. Well, right. I mean, they know how to play at least, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you could make a kid-friendly theme by being ducks, sheep, and chickens. Yeah, totally. And flip it over and be like, who's taking up the most space on the card? Is it the duck, the cow, the, the sheep, or the horse? For sure. And they name it and they get the point. 
Have you played Sticky Chameleons? No. You've got a big spread of cardboard tiles that are tossed randomly on the board of different insects. And you have, you know, those, those rubber hands that are sticky that you like. Yeah. yeah. And stuff? So it has those. And what you do is one person will roll a die with a color on it and a die with an insect on it. And you'll try to find that insect with that color right. and whip it and reel it back in. Yeah. Which is a ton of fun for kids. The one thing with that one is they also have these wasps that are like negative points and you don't want to get So when you're teaching kids, I found the wasps were the step too far. It's like yeah. they just want to find the thing that they want. They don't want to care about right. anything else. It's funny. Let's go back to the test the skill thing. If, if you look at every game as testing a skill, Candyland is actually a really good game for kids. People mm. give Candyland so much guff because they're like, there's no choice. You don't do anything. There's no point to it. You could play it against a wall and be the same, same as snakes and ladders, mm -hmm. except the skill that they're testing is one that you don't even think about. In Candyland, the skill that you're testing is matching colors. Now, the flaw, quote unquote, of Candyland is that it doesn't tie to your victory. Like whether you're good or bad at matching colors doesn't mean that you win or lose. Snakes and ladders being good at counting doesn't mean that you actually win or lose. But if you look at a game as testing a skill, Snakes and Ladders is testing the skill of counting. Mm -hmm. Candy Land is testing the skill of color recognition. These are really important skills for kids. You're not having a good time because you don't need those skills tested. <laughs> like, they're not for you. Mm -hmm. So to be like, oh, Candy Land's dumb. I'm not going to play that with my kid. Cool. Okay. Like, you, you've missed the point of Candy Land. You've missed the point of Snakes and Ladders. My son loves Snakes and Ladders. And he loves Patchwork. And he loves King Domino because the skill of counting is still one that he gets a rush out of testing. Mm -hmm. If you were a robot who could analyze color, Illusion would be a very boring game. Mm -hmm. In the same way as if you were an adult who could recognize colors, Candyland is a very boring game. It's the same as saying like, oh, tic-tac-toe, that's a solved game. Yeah. It's like, okay, but not everyone has solved it. Yeah, exactly. And the process of solving it is super valuable for kids to be able to get to that next level. You want them to play Agricola with you? Great. You can't start yeah. with Agricola. <laughs> you can't even start with my first Agricola. Yeah. So this isn't just me bagging up people. I want to talk about the things that I've found when trying to design a kid's game. So firstly, a lot of people do this and I really don't think it's ever a good idea. If you're like, I made a Euro and it wasn't interesting enough so now it's a kid's game, that's a huge red flag. Kids games are not less interesting Euros. Mm -hmm. Yes, kids games aren't interesting to you, and yes, you'd rather be playing a Euro than Snakes and Ladders, but that doesn't mean that A plus B doesn't equal C in this case. You can't just say, oh, a Euro that's less interesting is a kid's game. It doesn't work like that. Kid's game are about testing a skill. They're about one rule. They're about really simple kinetic or, or not even kinetic because Spotted is not a kinetic game at all. It's purely a visual matching thing. Well, it, it is connecting game modes where you know, it's like the type. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, fast, the fastest thing. Anyways. I think that's worth pointing out because the energy of it and being able to move and touch things. Yeah. That is huge for yeah, kids. Kids don't want to sit there and ponder. Mm -hmm. They want to play it. And so, again, my son loves Potion Explosion. And we don't play with all the potion powers and stuff like that yeah. because he gets to lift a marble and watch it click. And then those clicked and those are the same colors. So you're, you're testing that skill and he takes them out and more click and boom and so on and so forth. So he really likes that. A King Domino patchwork, he likes matching the colors. King Domino is dominoes, you know? Mm -hmm. He likes being like, oh, if I match all these yellows together and they've got crowns on them, I'll get a bunch of points at the end. And he's at the age now where he's learning multiplication. So mm. adding up the scores is a part of the game for him. Like that's a fun part of the game. Oh, he's learning multiplication already? <laughs> I learned that so much later in life. He's in college. He's in his second year of college and he's finally learned to multiply. We're a bit disappointed, frankly. Man, the pandemic is really rough for such a time. <laughs> so I would recommend don't start with your bad Euro <laughs> and be like, well, that's a kid's game. And similarly, don't be like, okay, what do I want to play and how can I make it dumber? It's the wrong angle to approach it from. 
Yeah. So where should you approach it from then? You just said where not to approach it from. So what's a great starting point for a kid's game? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And that, that's the million dollar question. Right. Um, well, you said already like you want to test one skill. So is it like, pick a skill to test and find a way to test that that engages kids? So the fight we had, the big roaring argument at the end of the last episode was when you said, Peter, you're an expert in kids games. And I was like, I am not because <laughs> I have never designed a kids game. Right. Just kid friendly. Kid friendly game. Gotcha. And so for me, uh, like I, I could never kids game, but I've never sat down and been like, oh, here's an idea for a kids game. Right. But I would recommend looking at what they're learning in school, which sounds so boring and educational, but like if they're learning multiplication, is there a way of making that like the King Domino thing where I, if you don't know King Domino, you're laying out these tiles that uh, have colors and crowns. So it might be like blue with one crown and yellow with none. And you lay them out to a grid. And if you can have like at the end of the game, if you have five yellow with two crowns, then you say, okay, five yellow spaces and those yellow, those contiguous yellow spaces have two crowns. That's two times five. That's 10. That is an example of how to make multiplication into a fun game for kids. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that kid dominant kingdom is a little bit too gamey. Yeah. But that's an example of taking something that they're learning in school and gamifying it. So I, I want to roll back slightly here. So you said you have made kids games. It's interesting because when I play Meow, maybe this is just because, you know, I'm a hardcore gamer and I don't see it this way. To me, I definitely thought of Meow as a kids game to the point where I was like, this is the, the first thing that I want to teach my niece. This feels like the most kid friendly game. And personally, it's not a game that I would pull out without kids. So do you want to talk a bit about where you see that being different from my perspective on it? Yeah, for sure. Well, do you want to explain how Meow works? Sure. Yeah. So the idea of Meow thematically is you're part of this cat cult. It's a very cute theme. And <laughs> you're trying to join the cat cult. Yes. And you're trying to join the cat cult by following all the rules. The problem is you don't know all the rules yet. And so you're trying to figure out what the rules are of the cult. Follow them. And once you have made a noise or done all the things that are required of this in a single turn, you have now been accepted into the cult, you win the game. So it's about realizing what other people are doing, figuring out what type of rule would be associated with that behavior, copying that, and then doing that with all the people that are playing the game. So if there's four people playing, you need to know all the three other people's rules, plus you're doing your own rule that everyone else is trying to figure out. Is that an okay explanation? Yeah. The key thing is that you win if you go around the table and no one corrects you, basically. Right. So on your turn, if I clap twice, rub my head, do a dance, make the sound of a tuna, and then say a president's name, and I say, okay, that's my attempt at the initiation ritual, and I go around and no one can play a card that I didn't do, then I win. Mm -hmm. That's how you win the game. And I would put that maybe toe over the line <laughs> of like maybe a kid's game. I think it's a little too rulesy. That one has two pages of rules. It's a double-sided sheet of rules. That for me is too many rules for a kid's game. I suppose. But if I was teaching my niece, I think I could teach that really, really simply. Maybe not. Maybe not. It also involves a, a level of subterfuge that kids games typically don't. So that's the thing that when I'm playing the game, I'm not picking up on it. And maybe I'm just bad at the game. Frankly, you know, well, what I mean by that is in, in a kid's game, you almost don't want to put them in a situation where they have secret information. Gotcha. Because if a kid says, I have these cards, they've played it wrong. Right. I kids can't. want to play with their hands face up if they have a hand at all. Mm -hmm. Right or hero. Again, that's right at the edge of kid's game. You can play that with face up hands. Yeah. You also run into the problem of if a kid makes a mistake, you can't correct them. If they have hidden information, right, exactly. then they're playing the game wrong, you're in big trouble. And it also can lead to weird arguments, I think. Of, you didn't do that. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. Right. right. So I'm very touched that you would play that with your niece and, and look forward to it. But I don't think of that as a kid's game. 
Mm. I think it was a, a jelly bean game, which maybe we should touch on at the end of like that. What, what I'm talking about is a whole different category. But uh, yeah, so for a kid's game, I would think of a single thing that is fun to do. Again, this is why I've not made a kid's game, because I think it's really hard to, to do a good one. Let, let me give you an example of a time where I think I, I did a really good job of helping someone with their kid's game. So someone had a game where the theme was like you were linking arms while falling out of a plane, something like that. So everyone had a card. I can't remember the exact rules. This was years ago now. Everyone had a card and you like link arms with everyone else. And then the version that he had, he was like, I want this to be a kid's game. And then there were like five steps to a turn. And I said, okay, cut all of that. If you can do one thing, then you win. And I can't remember what the one thing was, but it was like, maybe you had two cards and you had to hold hands with someone who had those same colors of cards and it was a co-op or something like that. And I said, okay, cool. Cut all the stuff of like, you draw a card and play a card and you draw two cards and play a card and just say, draw two cards. If you can hold the blue card with someone else who has a blue card, and the red card, someone else has a red card, then you win. Something like that. I can't remember the exact details. Okay. And it was just a case of cutting 90% of the rules and focusing on that core skill, that core one thing of like, don't, don't have a turn flow, don't have this, don't have that. Just be like, you're trying to do this one thing. Because that, that's what these games are. You're trying to do one thing. Have you heard of hippopotamuses and crocodiles or hippos and crocs? No, that's a game. Yeah, it's a brilliant game. The guy was approached by someone who taught autistic kids and she was like, I want you to design a game that has one rule. Okay. It's a two-player game. You have a little stack of either hippos or crocs, and they're polyominoes. So the crocodile is like five across and then two legs, and the hippo is like a, a more of a bulbous shape. Sure. But they're the same number of polyominoes. Everyone has their own stack of theirs. I have hippos, you have crocodiles. On your turn, you play one onto the board, and if you can't, you lose. That's it. That's the entire game. Gotcha. And so it's just a spatial puzzle. Obviously, the board is discrete. It's got edges. Mm -hmm. You can't overlap the edges. And so you're trying to play your alligators to try to like block the crocodiles. Mm -hmm. And because they're such different shapes, you know, when I play mine, it, it helps me build more alligators and yours helps you build more crocodiles. Oh, so, 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 hippos. so you have your own pieces. Yes. yes. You have the alligators, I have the hippos. Gotcha. So you play touching your own pieces and, and if you can't play the news. There's no touching your own pieces. You just play one of your pieces onto the board. And if you can't, then you lose. Okay, so in terms of blocking, you just mean like play something in a space that makes it so I can't fit my piece. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So that's an example of a great, simple, there is one rule. Play a thing, if you can't, you lose. I guess you could argue that's two rules, but it's so dead simple mm -hmm. uh, that he sold thousands, if not tens of thousands of copies of that game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and animal upon animal, you roll a die, you place the thing. Two rules, but they're so connected. And they're, yeah. They're, they're pretty intuitive. Right, exactly. Yeah, oh. In two, like the issue with, with the game I mentioned at the start is that we had to keep asking what the rules were. Mm. If anyone has to ask what a rule is, you've already gone wrong. Right. If someone's like, wait, how does this work? Kids are not going to be able to process that. Again, spot it, perfect example. How does this work? You, you never have to ask that with spot it. Right. And I'm thinking ice cool. That's like an older kid's game, partially because of like finger dexterity isn't there for younger right. kids. But also the rules are complicated enough that you have to do a lot to simplify it asymmetric player rules right. and they change and then there's powers that you can use if you get low fish cards yeah you can tell a gamer designed that for gamers and and it works as a kid's game but it's not designed for that right and that's if, a kid-friendly game that's that's what i would call a kid-friendly game right and if if you cut some rules out you can play it with kids in the same way as with king domino with my son we don't play with a five by five restriction because he just finds that too frustrating so the rule is just you can play your dominoes anywhere Mm -hmm. a, a way to think about the distinction could be kid-friendly games are games where you can cut a rule and make them into games that you know, right. much younger people could play. Right? Yeah. 
Whereas uh, kids' games... You can't cut a rule. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can't, or there isn't a game. Yeah, game. kids' games tend to be very toyetic. Like, that is a huge focus. So if you have a look at the Harbour line, Harbour games are all perfect kids' games. They do the Cuckoo's Nest one, I think, which is just pull out a thing, and if the marble, you know, take all the marbles that fall, most marbles loses. Did they do TikTok Woodman? Is that them? No, that's something else. But yeah, if you have a look at Harbour games, then like that, if, if you want to design a kids' game... Go buy five Harbour games, play them, and say, would my game fit in this line? You can pretty much buy them at random, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So you asked, how would I design a kid's game? And again, I can't really answer that, but I can say I would think about theme. Yeah. You can't make an abstract kid's game. I guess, sorry, Spot It. But even Spot it's like, oh, cute moons. Right. And Spot It is brilliant because you can now get Frozen Spot It. Right. You can get Toy Story Spot It. Like, so think about theme. Like you mentioned that animal on animal game. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that's animals and not blocks. <laughs> right. So what are kids like? They like animals. They like, oh, more importantly, what are parents like their kids to like? <laughs> right. So animals, cars, like anything like that is pretty safe. Dinosaurs, ponies are, are popular. Yeah. But, but don't, don't do the industrial revolution. I think being colorful is also huge, regardless of what it is. Yeah. It needs to pop. And table presence is something we talk about a lot. And usually we talk about table presence as something to attract someone to the game initially. Table presence is not only what uh, attracts people to the game initially, it's what keeps kids there. Because kids don't have the attention to like sit there and push cubes. But if they're pushing dinosaurs. Right, right. Or, or in the Cuckoo's Nest example, if they're taking stuff out and it's clattering, like you want that feedback. So we yes, talked about feedback. Have we talked about feedback in this? We have, but let's, this is, this is, I think, a great chance to like go in much deeper on it, I think, because it's so much more important for kids' games. And you can do, and often you can do more with kids' yeah. games. So in the game I was talking about with the grid, oh, you know what else this game had? Sorry, I'm being very derogatory to my friend's game. It had three rules cards and one would switch out each round. And oh, like, mama. This is a problem. In any game where you take cards and they're worth victory points in sets, you've abstracted what you're getting. So we said that Ghost Blitz was great because you get the card. Kids get yeah. that. I have this thing and now it's a point. Mm -hmm. Kids don't necessarily get, I have three greens, therefore that's five points. That's, it's just, you, it needs to be physical. It needs to be tactile. Mm -hmm. So feedback, we, we, we could probably do a whole episode on feedback and not giving feedback to games, yeah, yeah. like uh, <laughs> feedback within a game. With a kid, you want it to rattle. You want to make it make a noise. You want to take a thing. You want to touch it. You want to be the first to yell a thing. You want it to be really active verbs, basically. Verbs and nouns. Yeah. <laughs> Tangible nouns and active verbs is what you want. Yeah, you want them physically interacting with the components as much as possible. If yeah. a player takes an action, they need to physically touch the thing that they're now interacting with. Yeah. So in th the reason why feedback is so important, especially for kids, is because kids don't have the heuristics that adults do from having played a bunch of games. And so kids need to be able to latch on to what they're trying to do. And immediately, if they're doing the wrong thing, they need to know. And if they're doing the right thing, they need to yeah, know. Yeah, you can't have delayed feedback. Yeah, and that's just good design in general. Like we've talked about... No, I think delayed feedback can be good for like heavy games, for sure. It, it can be, but... Players can't associate why they lost. I mean, you, you can do it intentionally to obfuscate that they sucked. <laughs> but most of the time you want, oh, I did this thing. Oh, I know it's wrong to be able to learn from that. Yeah, but, the time. but yeah, I, I, th I think you're right. I'm just thinking I've been playing a lot of very heavy games lately. So sure. I'm like, feel free to give a counter example. We're, we're tangenting a little bit. Yeah. So in my first play of a Great Western Trail, mm -hmm. I didn't understand the significance of moving the train until two thirds of the way through the game. I messed up very early and didn't know that until the end. And then I was like, ah, okay, so next time I'm going to do this. And that was great. But So you think it was a positive that you didn't grasp I, the trick? I think that if, if everything was immediately apparent, then the game wouldn't be heavy anymore. 
Hmm. So see, I see that as a positive, but <laughs> part of that's my my player. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. In it, that's why I specified in a heavy game, mm-hmm. you can have that delayed feedback. Right. Oh, I thought you were saying it was an active, like net positive to delay the feedback. I think I think it's necessary. Okay. Yeah. I think like an early investment paying off later mm-hmm. is an example of delayed feedback. And I think that's completely necessary for heavy games. Gotcha. The other thing is, is and I, I said this earlier, but I just want to really emphasize it. You can't have multiple rules. <laughs> and that sounds so, like such a weird thing to say, but like as soon as you've got three steps of a phase, you've got too many. You want, you want to do a thing on your turn and that's the game. Mm-hmm. I also think you need to be really careful with memory. Like obviously memory games are a thing, but I think that it's very easy to overload kids' memories and there's a reason why a common kids game is like there's a, a four by four grid and there's matching pairs. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, yeah, it's memory, but it's, it's a very simple, very quick thing where they have to remember a very small amount of information and very distinct pieces of information that all relate directly back to the same thing. Like, right. It's, it's not a sub game in another thing. That's, mm-hmm. that's the whole game. It's just, can you remember where these two things were? Yeah. Because I've seen some games, I, I can't remember any at the time I had it, unfortunately, but I've seen some memory games where they go a bit further and even a bit further becomes really overwhelming really quickly. But I think one thing is if your game does allow a little bit more complexity or a little bit more thinkiness to it, that's not necessarily an issue as long as the kid has a way out of it. So for instance, with the memory game, oh, I can't remember. I can just pick randomly. Right. And they're not going to stress it the same way that like an AP gamer is over which, at least not from my experience. The kid's just going to be like, you know what? Uh, I think these two, oh, I'm wrong, whatever. Yeah. And maybe they get right and they're excited. You mentioned spikes earlier. So like mm-hmm. you want those moments of excitement where all the marbles fall, where the Jenga tower collapses, where you got the ghost thing right. Well, you're not even got the ghost thing right. You're racing for it and someone got it and you didn't. You also want to make it foolproof. And I, this is why I mentioned that Meow doesn't really fit into this because if the kid first thing they do is put all their cards face up, Cool. Now you have to, what, redeal? Like, just be like, oh, well, we're going to win then. It's not foolproof. You also can't do anything that's unintuitive. Everything has to be perfectly intuitive. So even if kids haven't played much with cards, they know pretty instinctively or pretty quickly, oh, yeah, I pick up cards and I look at the cards. Yeah. You, a, a Hanabi variant could never work as a kid's yeah, game, right? Yeah. It's so unintuitive. Or Bonanza, you have to keep these in a specific position. And here's another thing. Kids are never going to be able to wrap right. their head around that. And we talk about tapping into pre-existing knowledge of games. Yes. Kids have very little. So you like draw a card at the end of your turn. Great. Or the start of your turn or whatever. Great. Because that's the most common thing to overlap with other games. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to do like draw two cards or, draw, you know, mm-hmm. draw a card, put it at the bottom of your deck or anything like that. Or here's a die. Don't roll it. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think. And similarly... Because we can't rely on their pre-existing knowledge of games, you really need to scaffold onto the things that kids do know, the yes. things that do overlap between kids. So like we were saying, colors, counting, those are things that all kids know, but even something as simple animals. as animals. Yeah, animals are a huge one because kids are quite familiar with animals and particularly the common ones or the ones that are cute and kids, like cats, dogs, mice, bunnies, like the, the soft little safe ones. Yeah, the farmyard animals. Mm-hmm. Or if you need something to be, oh, it's the scary thing, then you can, then you know pretty instinctively yeah. like which ones to pick. Lion, the tiger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that could allow you to like make something more intuitive or more thematic in a way that helps the kids pick it up quickly that you don't really have another way of getting to because the game has to be so simple. I mentioned toyetic quality. It's possible to make games without that, but it's an uphill battle. Again, I'm not an expert. I've never made a kid's game. I'm not 
I'm not aspiring to make kids games. Uh, when I've spoken to publishers and they've been like, hey, do you have any kids games? What they mostly mean is toys. Nowadays, especially, they don't want a game, they want a toy. I started working with a few big game companies uh, about five years ago. And this was when the Pi Face had just gone super viral. So they were basically like, hey, can you design the next Pi Face? And I was like, that's not a game. Like, <laughs> no, no, no disrespect to Pi Face, but I'm not an inventor. <laughs> I'm a game designer. I can design a game around a component, but I've never sat down and been like, what's a good component? Because that's inventing a toy, mm-hmm. which is just outside of my skill set. I, I could see a little bit of overlap in some of them. We mentioned before, Rhino Hero is like a Jenga sort of variant. But yeah, it's very rare that there's board games that have the toy quality. And usually when they do, that's instantly the hook, right? It's right. like, wow, as soon as you look at this thing, yeah. you just want to do it. I was at a con with Andy Kim, who makes the most toyetic board games I've ever played. Did you ever see his one with the pipes? Yeah. Yeah, so there was this system where I think in his prototype, it was like styrofoam or something. Yeah. Holes are carved out in them. And only one side. It's sort of like Connect 4, where each side could only see part of the board. Mm-hmm. It's really clever. Yeah. And they got signed at that con, I think. And you're dropping marbles and yeah. going through these different pipes and you're trying to redirect them. Yeah. Amazing toy quality. It would have made a great kids game yeah. as well because it's so intuitive. Like, oh, ball falls down pipe. I can see the direction of the big ball. You, you, you've got that tactile element. You get to see going through the things. But while I can completely understand the logic of I don't like my kids' games. I do like worker placement games. I'm going to make a worker placement for my kids. Yeah. Do that for your own kids. Great. I'm never going to tell people don't design a game. But if you're bringing it to a playtest night, you're not going to get useful feedback. And if you're showing it to kids, you're also not going to get useful feedback. It's a really tricky one. You need to show it to people who make kids' games, and they will be like, oh, this won't work. For- or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that will work for some reason. But So have you ever playtested with kids? Obviously, you've got your son that you play with, you know, publish board games with. Have you ever playtested with him or with anyone else's kids? Because I, I don't design kids' games. Right. Like, I have no reason to. But you make kid-friendly games. Have you ever tested it for... We play Jelly Bean games with eight-year-olds. Sure, okay. And, and, and stuff like that. And, and also, we have a playtest network, so we send out a lot of people. A lot of parents playtest our games with their kids. So how does your playtesting change for even eight-year-olds? So I'm thinking now, and I think I've only really playtested with designers' kids, again, because I don't, gotcha. it's not my focus. Like, yeah. I, I playtest with a lot of parents, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of parents playtest with their kids, right. and that's sort of what I'm aiming for. That's my audience. And that's called testing anyway most of the time, yeah. right? Because it's through the name. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you already are getting uh, pretty reasonable feedback from yeah. that. Makes sense. So I wish I could answer, here's how you do it. But we should get someone on who does it. Yeah. That'd be a really good guess idea. I'll just get Alex on them. Yeah. <laughs> so Alex, how do you play test board games with kids? He should be a guest every episode. <laughs> so Alex, what do you think of heavy Euro design? <laughs> so we talked a little bit about themes already that appeal to kids in terms of like dinosaurs and like that type of thing. What types of themes do you think are unexplored with that? Because again, there's a lot of ones that people think are obvious because we've seen a million games do it. Do you, are there any are there any themes that you think are good for kids that hasn't been tapped yet? So unfortunately, it's not my area of expertise. This is what I tried to say at the end of the last episode. I'm not an expert in this. Our rule for Jelly Bean, I can tell you, is if you can imagine it as a Saturday morning kids cartoon, mm. that it's a theme we're interested in. Gotcha. We've published one pure abstract show and tile. And everything else has been like, oh, yeah, I would watch this show. <laughs> but for show and tile, that's one where it's a tactile one, right? Right, yeah. So for those who don't know, it's basically tangrams 
and it's like Pictionary Tangrams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it turns out you know how to explain your game. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great game. I played a lot. And so, yeah, I, yeah, again, I'm not in this field. All I, all I can say is when I see people bringing a, a Euro to a playtest night and saying, it's a kid's game, I'm like, it's not. Go listen to this episode. But yeah, I would go down to Target and look at or Toys R Us. I guess that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And just look at their game shelf and be like, okay, here's what's selling, here's what's not. And the thing is, too, kids want to a certain extent to know what their parents are into. So superheroes mm-hmm. feel like a really good idea right now because all the parents are going to be watching superheroes. Or Obviously, you could make Game of Thrones for kids, but if, if the parents were super into Game of Thrones, then you could do a fantasy thing that the parents would buy for the kids because kids don't have money. <laughs> so you got, you got to kind of market it to the parents as much as to the kids. Mm-hmm. Trucks, dinosaurs, yeah, all, all the mainstays. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's not many cars or trucks games. Yeah, you mentioned that. That does seem like a good opportunity yeah, for one. There's a window there. Yeah. Well, would be designer, go make one. <laughs> this is a freebie for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can have that. So we talked a bit about the card shape and like having tactile components and toyetic quality. What else should you look for in terms of components that are well suited for kids and what components? are ill-suited for kids, besides, obviously, lots of text. Right, yeah, text as little as possible. So Meow, even though it's not a kid's game, we just cut the text on that as much as we could. So every card is like three to five words or something like that. It used to be a sentence. It used to be a proper English sentence. Mm-hmm. And then David Stevenson, who was doing dev for us at the time, was like, you don't need the word, you must. <laughs> if every card says you must, you can cut it. And so from there, I was like, oh, and I cut this word and this word and this word. And so now they say stuff like bark like a dog. Right. And no one's ever like, who? And do I have to? <laughs> like those words were completely unnecessary. So kids love dice. Kids love like that random element. Mm-hmm. And again, match counting. But if you've got dice, they need to either have really clear pictures that you're matching something or they need to have a number that the kid can count. You can't have a die be like, ah, a shield and two swords. Yeah. And the shield on this one cancels out the sword on that. I mean, I would avoid cards, honestly. I feel like yeah, you don't, kids, kids don't want to be holding cards because that, and also relevantly, they're going to destroy the cards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what your kid play? And they don't want to sit there and ponder. They don't want to stare at the board. They don't want to hold things. They don't want to look at the cards in their hand. They want it all to be very sensual. Have we ever talked about zones of play? We have a little bit, but now seems like a good time to go into it. Yeah. So there's a theory, which is zones of play. So the central board is a zone of play, the hand of cards that you're holding. Mm-hmm. Your tableau is a zone of play. Maybe there's a side market that's a zone of play. So if you think of games in terms of zone of play... Think about where you want the player's attention to be or just as usefully where it is. Mm-hmm. We might have talked about this in Robotopia. I used to give people player powers in front of them and they would just forget them. And I was like, they're really good player powers. I kept on making more and more powerful people would forget them because that was the only thing in that zone. Mm. There was nothing else of relevance. So I ended up putting them on the board. So now the board in Robotopia has all the player powers and that's where your focus is. That's where you're always, always looking. And so that's the zone. So... When a kid is playing, they don't want a hand zone. They probably don't want a tableau zone. They just want a central zone. They just want to be where mom and dad are playing, where the other kids are playing. They all be playing together in that middle sandbox. So don't don't hide stuff at the side. Don't give them a hand. Don't give them player powers in front of them. Maybe you can give them like the points or whatever, but again, don't make it set collection. Yeah. Don't make it one of each other. We'll just make it, oh, you got the card? Cool, you got the card. And then at the end, you can win. And as they grow older, they'll start to care about that more. But at the start, it's just about the individual experience of every card coming out. Mm-hmm. I, I was so riveted. I was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. So yeah, anything toyetic is great. Anything that they can touch and play with and, you know, 
And in the Kaku game, you, or Jenga, you can't touch it all the time. But when it's your turn, <laughs> you get to touch it. It's your moment. Mm -hmm. And Rhino Hero, when it's your turn, you put the card on. I will say one thing is you need to think about the way that kids play games. As in, I gave the example of a sticky chameleons, which has all the pieces and you whip it and pull the piece back. Well, just so you know, that's the easiest game to lose pieces in, <laughs> in the world. And so I don't know if there's a fix for that. I mean, it's not designed for a young kid's game, but even still, it's something worth considering. Is there a way to make it so that you're not going to run into that issue? Or in Rhino Hero, when you knock over the cards, it's not too hard to find where the cards went right. and pick them up. There's not little fiddly bits that are going to fly under the couch. Right. Whereas junk art, like, there's tons of pieces that are going to roll if your structure yeah. gets knocked over. In Hungry Hippos, you're going to lose some of those balls, but there's a bunch of them and you don't need exactly 80 for it to work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can design a game that kids aren't going to be able to destroy, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. And again, a lot of this stuff is for like the two to eight age yeah once you get to eight then you can sort of start playing a proper full game of king domino etc my, my kid is not that age i've not had a lot of time with those ages uh, i know that that's when they really start to love uno and exploding kittens and that kind of thing which are more cardy games they're an actual card game but if you, if you can give it that fun theme i realize uno doesn't have a theme but like if uno has those spikes all the time where it's like ah you have to draw four ah i got the last card out etc and exploded kids has an amazing theme for kids and it's it's just crunchy enough that they can feel smart by teaching it <laughs> but none of this is applying to that level of game i'm, I'm talking like your I like the only thing Louis. i feel like the only thing explain kids is the the set collection if you have Two of this card, you, of just the art, you can play them together for this effect. Or if you have like three of them, you can play them for this other effect. And none of those effects are on the cards. I feel like that might be what's pushing it. But yeah, in, in general, that weight of game completely agree. That's yeah. definitely what I'd be looking for. And for components that don't work well for kids' games specifically, is there anything else that, that you really want to avoid? The thing to remember is that your, your kids' game is going to be on the you know shelf at Walmart for 10 bucks. We're not talking, you know, you're not going to have a $50 kids game. Like Gr Grim Forest was, I guess, 40 or $50. And that was more that kind of eight plus range that I was talking about. I feel like most of the Toyetic games are going to be 30 to 40 though. You, you, you'll be surprised. It'll be closer really? to 20. Right, like Loop, Loop and Louie? Loop and Louie would be a $20 game. Wow. Because they're printing in such bulk and they are making every component that doesn't have to be nice as, as thin as possible. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of those games come in pizza boxes because you can make a pizza box for one third the price of a telescoping box. Telescoping box is your standard board game box. They come in, yeah, maybe they come in telescoping boxes and maybe it's like $30, but that's if it's like a real centerpiece. This is going to be pulled out all the time, but you're aiming for a $20 game for that. Parents come in or, or the, the mass market idea of game prices is completely different to the hobby market's idea of game prices. For a sure. whole different world. For sure. Because most of the time it's like gifts, right? It's like buying it for your kids or buying it for a friend. And there you got like a pretty hard cap. Like think of how much you're generally willing to spend for an acquaintance's kid. Right. It's like 20 to 40 bucks most of the time that's yeah. going to be your cap, right? Yeah. And in fact, one thing I'd like to point out is I actually think that you want to, generally speaking, if you're designing a game that you think is going to be mass market, this is tangenting a little bit, but we're talking about like kids games getting to the mass market and stuff like that. I actually think you want to aim a little bit higher. I don't think games at like the less than $10 range are going to do as well because a lot of time when you're buying a gift, if they're buying something that's less than $10, then like, I want to buy something else as well because less than $10 is right. too cheap, right? 
And I'm trying to convert from Canadian pricing. In Canadian pricing specifically, like $15 is right on the edge where it's like, I really wanted to spend 20. And so if you can make the components a little bit nicer or whatever to bump it up just a tiny bit, if it's really cheap, I might suggest that because I noticed the more casual audience that come in to buy the gifts, that's the thing I kept having when I worked at a board game store is they would want to add something else that's small onto that. Whereas if it was like 20, they'd be like, perfect, 20, right. move on. Yogi's sold however many thousand copies, Double mm. Spotted has sold however many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, mm. like because they're a $10 game. It's, it's not a hard rule. Right, right. <laughs> not a hard rule for sure. Ah, oh, Yogi's so good. There's an expansion coming up. Did you a little know? exciting. I'm so excited. You have no <laughs> idea. I love Yogi. I love you. I have two copies. <laughs> One that I play with kids. And one that I don't play with kids. Actually, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting one. So for that one, they have uh, plastic cards specifically because they know that you're doing weird things with them. Like you're putting them, you know, in your armpit because they could get bent. They use really thick, sturdy plastic cards. I think Spotted does the same. Not for the copy I have, but maybe in some oh, yeah. editions. The copy I have, they're they're pretty it's thin. And, yeah, they're okay. problematically thin, frankly. Yeah. But that's one thing you can consider is maybe double has nice cards and spotted has. Oh, that's nice cards. that probably is it actually. <laughs> yeah, but that's something you could consider is like if you need to have cards as a component, maybe you could do plastic cards as a way to get around that. Yogi's kind of a special case because you are physically like doing a lot of painful stuff with those cards. Yeah. So maybe that's the way. So in terms of keeping games kid friendly, how do you keep the decision space really focused? Because I think having a narrow but challenging decision space is probably the sweet spot for adult games that kids can play, as opposed to something that has a lot of choices that takes you a while of mental energy to parse. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's, it's funny because are we talking kids games or kid-friendly games? Kid-friendly games. So kid-friendly games we haven't really dove into yet. You can answer the question for both. That yeah, well, well, kids games, I would never even think about decision space. With double, what's the decision space? Right. It's spot it. What's the decision space? So, so you would say that you can test kids' skills in in kids' games, but in kids' games, you should actively avoid them having to make decisions. Yeah, well, I think decision means that, again, you need multiple rules. Like, so in, in that hippos and crocodiles game I was talking about, I guess there's decision space. Of, like, where to play, sir. But is that decision space? Like, I don't think of that in the same... I, I definitely do. If I was to teach Blockus, you know, and my niece plays Blockus, you make a lot of decisions. Which piece do you want to play? Where do you want to play? Right, which, which piece do you want to play? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But hippos and crocodiles, you only have one piece. Right, sure. And so it's just where do you place it? Which is still a decision. Like It's a decision space, but in the way that if I was mapping out a decision tree, I would not have multiple nodes for that. Sure, yeah. Like if, if I said to you, pick a number between one and 10, that yeah, that's <laughs> a decision space from one to 10, but is it a decision space? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that's kind of apples to oranges because it's pretty arbitrary which number I pick versus... It does matter for the other players where I place it, right? In terms right. of block them off. I guess I'm thinking more of like, if I, if I said draw a picture, mm -hmm. that's infinite decision space that I don't think of decision space at all. So like in Pictionary, mm -hmm. when you're given the word to draw, then you have to draw a picture, right? Mm -hmm. Is that decision space? <laughs> it is. Yeah. But it's like, it's just you, a decision, which is what do you draw? Yeah, because if Pictionary is like, you have the word hat, you could draw a bunch of different types of hats. Right? I don't think of that as decision space. I like decision trees, whatever they're called. And so with... With, with the one where you said, which animal do you choose? Great. That's the first thing. Then there's multiple animals that you can choose. Mm. And then where do you place it? I put that in a separate category. And I think about this all the time because Patchwork, for example, has the choice of which of those three do you get. Mm -hmm. But then where do you place it? I'm like, you can't map that. That's just, a, a, for me, that's a whole different area. And I think most, most heavy games have that sort of ephemeral, you have a spatial puzzle, but that's not decision space to me. 
So just to take this a little step further, you're plain animal, pawn animal, which, okay, so this is perfect because I have to explain to everybody anyway. So basically you've got one large piece, one uh, large wooden block shaped like a crocodile, and then you have a bunch of differently shaped animals. And each turn you have to place an animal on the crocodile if they fall off, bad for you. But obviously where you place it on the crocodile matters a ton because there's a lot of like places that it will just fall off. And there's a lot of places where it could be sturdy or could be rickety for the next person. All those sorts of things. Right. You'd say, yep. I've worked it out. Perfect. Here's what it is. In a kid's game, I don't want the decision space to have different colors. So I'll use Jenga as an example. Every turn in Jenga is a decision space. Which block do I take out? Mm -hmm. But it's always which block. You're just choosing a block every turn. That's the decision space. Right. When you're placing your crocodile in crocodiles and hippos, it's where do I place it? It's always the one option of different flavors, you know? Gotcha. It's not do I place it in the pond or do I place it on my head or do I place it in the field? It's where on this board do I place it and it'll always be the same thing. In Jenga, it's which block do I take? It's not, ah, do I take two blocks and get the interest and next turn I only have to take one? It's pick a block. Gotcha. In Kaku, it's pick a stick. In, in double, it's pick, a pick an icon. Mm -hmm. It's always that one note decision space. Mm -hmm. So I don't think of that as a space. It is. I can see where you're coming from. But for me, that's, it's, it's all the same color. <laughs> sure. Okay. Is that, does that make sense? I thought like you expressed a weird. I don't think we have like a, a term we could use to differentiate them, but I think everybody, at least I understand. They're symmetrical. They're, yeah. yeah. They're, they're not actually symmetrical, but they're all symmetrical choices. Yeah. So give the players one symmetrical choice each turn and make it the same symmetrical choice each turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a really strong rule of thumb for people. And I think that's a really good litmus test as well. Right. Where yeah. you can look at your game and you're like, oh, I don't have that. How can I refine the game to make it focus on just the one yeah. type of decision? Right? Yeah. And then also, again, I'm defending, I'm defending Candyland and Snakes and Lattes here. That has zero decision space. Mm -hmm. And those are perfectly valid kids games. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you don't need to make a decision to test a skill. Right. And if you think about even even dexterity games, right, it's like you could make an argument for playing catch and you're like, oh, I make a decision of how far. Yeah, to yeah. what's the decision space? Yeah. I think what's, what's the decision space in golf? Which which club to use, I guess. But then. Well, like how far back you pull your right. Arm, yeah. How quick no. you move. Yeah. But like in terms of what I would think is a decision space, it's just which club do you use? Yes. And then past that, it's just like, well, how, how well, how, how good do you hit the ball? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're nailing this. Okay. Cool. I, I feel like this is more concrete than when we started. Yeah. I, I hope. <laughs> I, I, I've gone backwards. We've gone way backwards. <laughs> I understand it better than we saw. <laughs> so what are the difficulties for you in designing kid-friendly games that else like? Is there a tension there or is there a cohesion in your eyes? Oh, there's a massive tension there all the time. I, I've talked in the past about the Dominic Crapashuti's talk where he talks about the first yeah. play versus the 10th play decision. It feels like that a lot of the time. Let, let's revisit in case they missed it. Yeah, so Dominic Crapashuti's did a great talk to retailers or designers or someone, and he said the, the, the choice that you'll constantly be making when designing a game is between do I improve this for the first play or do I improve it for the 10th play? And this, this is a tension that I really enjoy diving into. And so m most of my heavier games have a first play recommended layout as my way to like try to solve that game. So in Cartouche, you get three achievements that are like, here, first game, play this. And if it was only the first game, I would just print them on the board. <laughs> right. But I want that replayability for the 10th game. So it's a deck. So similarly with 
designing jelly bean games, I'm always thinking like, okay, I could add a rule here, which would make it better for the adults, but worse for the kids. I tend to avoid victory points. I think we've talked about this in the past. It's just my design aesthetic is no victory points. And I think that lends itself really well to kid-friendly games. Now, Mm -hmm. grown-ups would probably prefer my games if they had victory points, frankly, but there's something about the immediacy of you win when you X as opposed to you finish it and then you count up and then you blah, 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 that I find really appealing and that I think makes it kid-friendly. So it also gives you a lot of focus, which is really valuable for kid-friendly games. Yeah. Whereas in points out to take the extreme opposite, what's a good strategy on my turn? Oh, you can do anything because anything gets you points. That's very hard to grok. Whereas if you say you want to do this very specific thing, then they can sort of formulate a plan. So yeah, I would say it's definitely a tension, but in the same way as restrictions always breed creativity, it it gives me a laser focus. Like Mm -hmm. I can always be like, okay, well, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And our games have a bit of a a breadth. So like Dracula's Feast is probably one of our least kid-friendly games. Like parents really like playing it with their kids because it's a social deduction game with no lying. So that's one thing. I think what what do do parents want their kids to be doing and what kids want to be doing with their parents? Hmm. So my games have a lot of trickery because kids love tricking their parents. And so in ninjutsu, you play a card face down. It could be a treasure. It could be a trap. Kid doesn't care if they win or lose. If their parent reveals a trap at one point, they've won. (laughs) Even if they lose the game, they've had that moment where they win. Parents don't want their kids to lie necessarily. So Goblin Teeth is a good example. That's a game of cheating. Mm -hmm. But it's not actual cheating. It's just a card that lets you cheat. So it's it's a way of letting kids be duplicitous without ever actually having to lie to their parents. I guess Hidden Panda is as close as we got where you have to like lie about the thing and that was... Not a, not a, not a big hit for us. It didn't, it, it, it crossed those boundaries in a weird way. So I would never again make a jelly bean game where someone has to lie to someone else mm-hmm. because no parent wants to sit down and be like, okay, kid, I'm going to teach you how to lie to me today. Yeah. Like it's, it's weird. And even the bluffing, like that works for the 10 plus kid range, but that's going to be really difficult for younger kids, regardless of how it manifests itself, if it's even done in a playful way. That that extra layer of thinking as opposed to like the direct straightforward yeah. can be very difficult. So yeah, so some things that it eliminates immediately is our games have no economies. Mm-hmm. The turnips and village pillage is as close as we get, and that's not really an economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no converting resources into other resources or anything like that. You either have a thing or you don't. Just because I think economies are a, a bit too high for looting for kids. Yeah. They have, like I said, no lying... Um, if if it if it's a bluff, so like putting the card down face down is a form of bluffing, mm-hmm. but a kid can be like, oh, it's a trap card. I can put that down. And like, I've seen kids gleefully being like, go on, mom, take this card, take this card. <laughs> and the mom might know it's a trap and take it, or the kid might actually be legitimately bluffing. <laughs> and the mom avoids it because she thinks it's a trap and it's a treasure. There's all kinds of fun ways it can manifest. And so, yeah, I, I don't have a, a list exactly, but there's a lot of stuff like that where I'm like, okay, that's just really not an option. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. Is there any overlap where kid-friendly games and adults just naturally click? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it, it's hard because it's all a bit holistically my game philosophy in general. For Jelly Bean Games, one of the strong focuses has always been, I want to design games that you couldn't play electronically. You can't play against a computer. Yes. I think that's a great, great thing to live by. And so uh, Goblin Teeth, which I didn't design, that's one of the few games that we've published that's not my design. That's Frank Tadeshi. It's a brilliant design. I really like Goblin Teeth. I really Teeth. like it too. That one, I think you could play against a computer. And that's not a fault of design at all. Like I published it because I adore that game. It's one of the best games we've made. But I think that one, you could play against a computer in a way that most of our games, you could. Dracula's Feast, you couldn't play against a computer. 
Yeah. I guess it's pure logic. So you technically could, but it's really about reading what the other people are doing. Mm. And so I'm always looking for that connection in my games in general. And that really works with parent and kid. Kids want to connect with other people when playing a game. Parents want to connect with other people when playing a game. If kid and parent play together, they want to connect over the game. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I'm, I'm looking at stuff like French Toast is our upcoming retail release. And oh, maybe by the time this comes out, it's our former retail release. <laughs> uh, go, go buy French Toast. It's great. It is great. And that game is about working out how someone thinks. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't know, uh, it's a game where I have a secret object, so it could be nail. And AJ's trying to guess it. He would say an object. Well, so I now have to compare uh, French toast to nail and work out which one ball is closer to. Mm -hmm. So I would say a ball is closer to French toast. So I'd reply with French toast. Now, that's just my interpretation. You might think, well, hang on, Peter. A ball is clearly closer to a nail than it is to French toast. And that's sort of the crux of the game. Mm -hmm. Kids have this weird connection with this game because they, they, the, as adults, we sort of second guess it. We're like, is a ball closer to a French toast or to a nail? Whereas a kid is like, obviously it's this. Like, they just know. <laughs> and so that's a really fun one. Adults love this game. Kids love this game. And it's the kind of game that just melds that sort of what you were saying. Like, it answers both those questions straight away. Mm -hmm. Because it's about people and it's about connection. It's about language. If you if you like Wavelength or those types of games, you'll definitely like French yeah. Toast. French Toast is, is killer. I love it. Yeah, I think French Toast is probably one of your most kid-friendly games, wouldn't you say? It's funny, yeah. I think of Scuttle and Ninjitsu is very, very kid-friendly. I just think because there's like a little bit more rules script to those ones, whereas French yeah. Toast, it's like you're just immediately playing. And I guess French Toast takes a turn or two to sort of get what's going on. But after those two turns, it's just like, you know. Yeah. yeah. So. And it also can be played with any number of people, so kids can join in without feeling the pressure. Yeah, the, the opt-in nature of it is really useful. But I think that has more to do with like parties than necessarily like kid-friendly games. Yeah. Hmm. There's overlap there too, of course. Do you write rule books thinking a kid could read this? Or do you write it for the parent to teach to the kid as a kid-friendly game? Yeah, we do write it for the parent just because, I mean, we try to write it as simplistically as possible. There's no, there's no highfalutin words in our rule books. But I don't have any expectation that an eight-year-old is picking up our rule book and learning it from there. Right. I, I think that's important because you need to have the rules clarity more than anything. And regardless, it's hard to imagine a situation where a kid is picking up a rule book and reading it on their own and isn't also a gamer, right? Right. Like, yeah. If, if the kid's playing the game, it's because the parent bought it to that, play with That the part of the Venn diagram is a dot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. How do you think iconography works for kids? Do you think iconography is acceptable or to what extent maybe is it acceptable? That's an interesting one. Um, we our, our games don't lend themselves to iconography so much. Like French Toast has none, Goblin Teeth has none. Which is interesting because you work really hard to make your rules in your heavier games all iconography. Yeah, I, I really like icon-based design. I just, I find it really appealing. I've learned a bunch recently about how I read because I figured that everyone reads the same way. I learned recently that the way I read is actually quite unusual hmm. in that if you give me a page of text, I will immediately process the whole page Jeez. And then like start. So I, I learned this actually, I was on a call with a friend of mine and I was like, Hey, just hit the print button. He's like, Oh, and so we start from the top left to find the print button. Whereas I just scan the whole page and I zone in, like, like I, I zoom in like a find, you know, like I've control F the page. Hmm. 
And so I, I started reading about this and was like, oh, this is a thing that some people do. They quickly read the whole thing and then, and then zoom in. So for example, I really dislike repeated words. So if you're reading in my writing, you'll find that I will not use the same word twice in a paragraph if I can avoid it. And I won't start two paragraphs with the same letter, let alone the same word. Because when I'm reading that text, I want it to be so different that I can find the thing that I want really quickly. Hmm. Oh, movies are a good example too. If a movie has subtitles, I'm reading. I can't read comic books because I'm just reading the text and then I get to the end of the page. I'm like, oh, there are pictures too. <laughs> I'm just, if there's text there, that's all I'm focusing on. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I, this is a total tangent. One of the reasons I like icon-based design is because there's no text there for me to like distracted get by. distracted by right. because that's all I can see. So I th I've realized that's one of the reasons I like text, uh, I like icon-based design so much. It's a very <laughs> recent discovery. During development on Village Pillage, we hired an external dev and to, he wanted to completely remove the luck in Village Village. So the first thing he did, David Stevenson. It was David Stevenson, yes. He put out all the cards in a five by four grid. Oh, I heard. <laughs> and then when you buy a card, you can buy it from the bottom of any column. And I can't play that because that's just a wall of text that I'm just constantly scanning and processing and scanning and processing. And I just can't do that. Mm -hmm. And he reads completely different to me. So he had no issue with it whatsoever. And he kind of couldn't understand why I had an issue with it. And ultimately I'm the publisher, so I get to decide what happens. But it was really this... Not even a fight, just this like, we could not understand why the other person was disagreeing with it so heartily. Well, and even apart from that specific way that you comprehend information, there's also now there's just so much more to parse on the board, right? Right. Whereas, it like, makes it look like a heavier game than it is. Yeah. I think that was the case that finally one, one you know, <laughs> convinced him that mine was the correct way other than I'm the publisher and I could decide, but like, it just makes it look heavy and it's not a heavy game. Mm -hmm. But it was quite interesting. So I like icon-based design because I don't want to read a bunch of stuff. But in my kids' games, or my kid-friendly games, there's not a bunch of stuff for you to read. There's no central board in any of my games. Mm -hmm. uh, in any Jelly Bean game, no Jelly Bean game has a central board. I guess the closest would be in Goblin Teeth, there's the, like, the three cards. Oh, Goblin Teeth's a good example. So that came to me with the art, and all the cards said what they were. So the tooth said tooth, and the gem said gem, and the worm said worm, and I cut that text. You don't need it. So I think that... Yeah, I, I think that kids, I sort of think ninjutsu has the little icon for treasure versus trap versus et cetera. And I've never had any, any kid have a problem with that whatsoever. But I also always give a reference card that says what they do. Earlier when we were talking about kids games as opposed to kid-friendly games, you specifically said that you want to have a central board to focus the kid's attention. Onto the I, I, I want the game to be in the central zone. Right. So then uh, you said that none of the Jelly Bean games have a central board and they have instead cards in your hand zone or in your tableau or both. So I'm just curious, why is there that difference? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that all the Jelly Bean games have no central zone. So Lady in the Tiger Labyrinth, for example, True. it just doesn't have a board. And I meant literally a board, like mm -hmm. Robotopia has a board. None of, it, none of our games have a central board whatsoever. So... I'm running through them now. I think most of our games do tend to, in terms of the zones of interest, be focused on the one, the, the tableau, the hand, and then I'd say hand and central are the two kind of zones that we play with the most. So to answer the question, why that difference? I think because we are not making kids games. I think if we make kids games, I would just be like, cool, here's the game. It's in the middle. Play this. But as it is, we are making those kind of they say heavier. <laughs> if you played a jelly bean game, you'll be like, heavier, really? Yes. Heavier than spotted. Then I want that individuality. I want that like, I am doing this thing. This is me. And here, here, here is me and here's how I interact with the center. Right. That makes sense. We talked a little bit about how you don't like 
victory points for games and how you like to have a, a clear goal. Do you have any suggestions on how to come up with a clear and kid-friendly objective or win condition for games? Because like you said, you do this a lot more than most other designers do. Right, yeah. This is something I think about all the time, and we should do an episode about this if we haven't already. But could you save it for, for future episodes? Uh, no, I'll talk about it briefly. So the things that I think about, the ideal form of a kid-friendly game for me is first to X. So in Meow, it's first to not be negated, which is so many negatives. That it, <laughs> first to complete the initiation. In Scuttle and Ujitsu, it's first to 21, which is victory point adjacent. But it is different. Like, first to get 221 wins. Mm -hmm. I guess that's if it's not victory points, it's always going to be first two because Village Village is first to three relics. And the reason is that it's just so simple. Like, mm -hmm. you don't have to ask, okay, what gives you victory points? Uh, I played Lost Ruins of Arnak, which is amazing, by the way, really recommend. And the person I was playing with got the score sheet and sat it next to her for the whole game so she could keep track of everything that gave her points. Yeah. Which is completely reasonable. And I, I totally feel that. When I play heavy euros, I feel like I need to do the same thing because it's like, oh, these three different resources converted these ways, but then you get points for each set of these and then you get points for these subsets over here. Right, and, and it, Ruins of Ardak is interesting because no resources are worth anything at the end. Oh, good. But it's a deck builder, so the cards in your deck are worth points. There's a research track, so how far you are on the research track is worth points. You kill monsters, so the monsters you kill are worth points. So at least, at least those ones sound intuitive to me. Absolutely. And they, and they are, but you still need to keep track of all the things that get you points, which in my games, you don't, mm -hmm. there's nothing that gets you points. Instead, it's like, as you're playing, what gets you towards victory, but you're never going to halfway through the game be like, oh, I forgot about the research track. Yeah. You can't. <laughs> Artist Project is a, a Euro that I really, really enjoy. But one of my complaints about it is that maybe my only complaint about it is that the scoring feels too gamey to artificial for each set of these things you have points okay but then your leftover ones also converted to points yeah. and then if you have at least this many of this thing it's this many points but if you have more and it's not a linear one point for each thing right and there's just enough of those different scoring conditions that i have to basically just leave out the aid and people right. will inevitably forget one of them in their first play yeah cartouche is my only game that has proper actual victory points in it mm. Uh, unless I'm forgetting one. And that's co-designed with Jeff. So by myself, I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> but Jeff Fraser is like, it's got to be victory points. And I think he was right. And that one is the scorecards and the achievement board and leftover resources. And that's still three things, which for me, I'm like, that's so many. But they're the, the only three things you're doing in the game. <laughs> and two of them have the points printed on them. And the other thing too is right at the last minute in the rule book, we changed a rule. So that at the end of the game, it's not leftover resources, it's scarabs specifically, which are your wild resources. Mm. And at any time in the game, this has always been true, you could turn two resources into a scarab. So now it's just scarabs are one point, story cards, change. achievement cards, and it just means that you don't have to be like, wait, what's the conversion rate here? It's like, no, it's just scarabs. That's it. One point per scarab. Yeah. That's a good change. Yeah, I was really proud of that. That was like on the 57th revision <laughs> of the rule book. I was like, wait a second. They already convert. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> not, that's very fun. Anything else you want to talk about for kid-friendly games or kids' games that we haven't covered? I will reiterate. I know I said this a bunch. I'm not an expert at this. I've never published one. I've never professionally dev'd one. I've worked with people who have worked on them, of course. For me, it's just when I, when I see someone coming in and they've got this medium weight Euro and they've called it a kid's game, I just want to be able to point them to this episode and be like, look, you've done nothing immoral. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying you can't be a designer. I'm just, I just want to explain like there is a difference and this is my best attempt to explain it. Mm -hmm. I think the distinction between kid-friendly and kids is very valuable. It's helped me understand even our line of games right. a bit better. And, and actually on that note, 
a kid-friendly game needs to be fun for adults. Right, absolutely. If it's not fun for adults, it's not a kid-friendly game. Mm. It's just a kid's game. At that point, it's a whole different beast. So kids' games, they don't need to be fun for grown-ups. They're not for grown-ups. They're kids' games. Yeah. And I'm not saying make games that make you poke your eyes out. You should be enjoying the games that you're making. But the challenge then is not to be like, how can I make a game that I would play with my kids? It's how can I make a game for my kids to play? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a whole different beast. It really is. Oh, this is one really minor thing, but I just thought of. So I mentioned Sticky Chameleons earlier. And I just remembered that there is a mass market, more toy version of that. And I, I should double check this. Maybe I'll do it in follow-up if, if I get something wrong here. But the things I remember that were different is one, the tongues were bigger, so it's easier to hit. The monsters were bigger, easier to hit, and they removed the the negative points. Right. The they made it a kid's game. Exactly. So I, I just thought that that's a good example of the difference between a kid-friendly game and a kid's game before yeah. we sort of said. Or even maybe the first one they were trying to make a kid's game, and they realized that they'd overshot, and they like... A different publishers, I'm pretty oh, sure. Well, and the same thing applies. Like the first yeah. one might have been intended to, and the second publisher was like, you know what? This is not quite a kid's game. Like mm-hmm. we can make it that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Cool. So AJ, I've only had fun once in the whole time I've been staying with you. And that Shoot. was about and that was about 90 minutes ago when we recorded the last <laughs> podcast. Can we please have some more fun? Okay. So I'm trying to make these questions a bit closer to the theme of the episode. Oh, okay. So how many kids do you have? <laughs> very boring answers do you know the answer for that for me two right i, I know that you've got no. one one donation kid I how many these seven donations seven that's yeah. awesome are we keeping well, this in because i'll have to explain it if so sure well, why not so i have my kid kid who like i raise as a parent and then when i was in australia i was a sperm donor and so i have seven sperm donation kids one of whom has got in contact and i've exchanged you know, messages with the mum and all that. Hmm. That's so what I, have, I knew about, but yeah. that's awesome. I have eight kids. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. How many kids do you have? As far as I know, zero. <laughs> that was fun. So that's, uh... <laughs> it was more fun than I thought. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> My answer was as boring as I thought. <laughs> well, no, actually, I was leading into, well, AJ, I've got a surprise for you. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm your son. <laughs> You're a grandfather. The math does not quite work on that. <laughs> so my actual fun question, because that was no fun at all for me, is what is something dumb that you believed as a child? I don't know if it's believed is the right word, but I, I guess believed. I was really impressed at the sheer, what are the odds? Like, what's a coincidence that water boils at exactly 100 degrees <laughs> and freezes at exactly zero? Like. Come on, what are the odds of that happening? It wasn't until years later that I was like, oh, that's not a coincidence at all. <laughs> and Fahrenheit is just a, a language for okay. fools. Okay, Fa- I, I'm going to defend Fahrenheit here. <laughs> so my assistant is Australian as well. We both live in LA. Mm-hmm. And she badmouths Fahrenheit because she's Australian and we use Celsius. Mm-hmm. I never learned Celsius. Like, I, don't, I don't know. I, ne- I don't really care about temperature that much. So never bothered learning. I knew that 40 was when the schools got shut and like zero was when it was snowing, I guess. It never snowed in Australia, so it never got to zero. So like, I guess 18 was kind of cold and 30 was kind of warm, but like beyond that, I never cared. So it was this really, I, like, why would I care about that? Fahrenheit, zero is uncomfortably cold for humans. A hundred is uncomfortably hot for humans. That's the range. It's a human-based system instead of a, a arbitrary, like, because for what we use it for on a daily basis, it's way more useful. Mm. 
So if you say, you know, what's, what's a good temperature, you go, oh, okay, 50 is a little cold and I think 70 is the ideal. It should be 50, but yeah. 70 is about the ideal. And then the further away from 70 you are, the better. And it's such a, such a good range that you can be like, oh, there is, you can be granular. It's a really mm -hmm. granular system. So I don't have super strong opinions on this, but I was friends with someone who was crazy smart. I think they were a scientist. They worked with temperatures for whatever they were doing. I knew him from an American-based camp, and I'm a Canadian. And there was a bunch of Canadians there. So, you know, we were around yeah. each other like, oh, Canadians with your bags of milk and stuff. If you didn't know, Canadians have bags of milk. That's how we do it. really weird. It is weird. It's, it's even weird for me now. But in this case, they were razzing them about like, oh, your stupid Fahrenheit makes no sense, blah, blah, blah. Water freezes at zero, boils at 100. And he was like, you know what there's a lot more of than water? <laughs> like, you know, human beings? <laughs> well, air was his example. Right. Know? If you look at like the number of particles, like Fahrenheit, he said for him was a lot more useful for all of his measurements than Celsius was because of how things worked out. I don't remember the conversation super well, but he did say it, it's, it's, it. I'm a big fan of using every part of the buffalo. Mm -hmm. And Fahrenheit does that. Celsius, you never have to think about anything above 40. So you have like minus something to 40 to deal with. Yeah, for, for human comforts, like negative 30 is freezing to like really, really cold and positive 30 is really, really hot. Right. And so you have to like do negatives and it's a whole hassle. Whereas Fahrenheit, it's just like, here's the human range, land where you like. Mm -hmm. So how about you? My answer, I didn't think girls had nipples. Wait, girls have nipples? <laughs> Wait, what? Do you now think that girls have nipples? I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I asked my wife and she said yes. Let me confirm. She Googled it and she was like, apparently I do. So this stems, from, you might be surprised to know this, sex ed isn't very effective. And so when I was- Sex ed isn't effective? What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really teach you much about... Sex. Oh, I say you meant like you learned it and it didn't land. No, so so this was, I think it was in kindergarten and we got like a diagram, but it was a really bad... Oh, yeah, diagram. yeah. So they censored the boobs of a woman. <laughs> and, but they didn't for the male's nipples. So like, oh, women don't have nipples then, I guess. Do you know the book, Where Did I Come From? Nope. Okay, so it's an illustrated book of like sex for kids, like not sex for kids. It's mm. like, how does sex work for kids? And it has a naked man and a naked woman, and they have intercourse in the book. And I read that at like four, so I never had any questions. I was like, oh, that's how sex works. And it wasn't like a sex, I wasn't like as a kid being like, oh, oh, oh. it was just because it's a part of life and it's educational. Mm -hmm. And they're not like hot, sexy models or anything like that. It's just normal looking people. Mm -hmm being naked and so you learn how it all works <laughs> it's funny because i would have been younger than that when i was like hey mom where do babies come from and she was like oh well here's and then explained exactly how sex right. i was like all right fine and yeah. like, i was like oh okay that's how it works but she never explained that women had nipples right <laughs> it didn't take me much longer to figure it out <laughs> for the record uh, but there was a 27 was the year <laughs> it's funny because you'd be like well didn't you like assume it before? It's like, I just had never thought about it before. And then I saw this picture and I was like, oh, there's none on here. So I guess yeah, that's how it works. That right? I used to like, our family is very nudity comfortable. So I would bathe with my parents. It was mm -hmm. an issue. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> Teaser. What are we talking about next time? We're going to talk about atomic slash time specific action. Yeah. Actually, let's talk about atomic design generally, because we sort of touched upon that uh, last episode. And I want to dive into it a bit more. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I'm excited. Atomic is a really handy word in game design. It just means like self-contained. 
So like an atom has everything an atom needs to be an atom. That's an atom. So uh, the, the example was last time we were talking about some of the cards in That Time You Killed Me or Atomic in that there's no reference in, there's no reference sheet in the rule book to understand them. Each card is completely self-contained, explains what it does, stands alone, that's atomic. And I find atomic to be a really useful concept in game design. I also use it for the smallest possible unit of something. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So like a single action would be like the atomic unit. turn, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be atomic units. Yeah. I've never thought about it in that sense, but yes, we can talk about that too. Sure. <laughs> Do everything atoms. It'll be fun. Cool. Well, that's all we have today. Uh, so I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.